Coming up, what should Britain's Prime Minister do now that her good, good friend Donald Trump has confirmed what so many people have suspected for so long? He must be a racist. Plus, we hit the north, though it'll take a while, and we'll say goodbye to an old friend. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading the latest podcast, the last episode of which was all about Donald Trump. Uh, my guest was Simon Marks, a journalist who spends his every waking moment monitoring and reporting on the president's ramblings. Here is a little of what he had to say. You constantly, I think, have to remind uh, listeners and viewers and the people that I broadcast to that nothing about this is normal. If you imply that there's a normalcy to what's taking place here, you're not really being objective in your coverage. And then after talking to me, he went on a week's holiday because surely in just one week, the sky couldn't fall in. Of course, we all know what happened next. Donald Trump came out and suggested that anti-Nazi protesters were equally to blame for the violence in Charlottesville as the neo-Nazis and white supremacists who were busy screaming, waving flaming torches and, in the end, killing someone after driving a car into crowds of protesters. After a couple of days, Trump delivered a scripted denunciation of the far right with a total lack of enthusiasm and then the next day decided to make clear just what he really meant. I watched those very closely, much more closely than you people watched it. And you have, uh, you, you had a group on one side that was bad and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. You had a group, you had a group on the other side that came charging in without a permit and they were very, very violent. And then a week after that, at a rally in Arizona, Trump went on to insist that he had never actually stuck up for right-wing nutjobs. So I'm condemning the strongest possible terms, egregious display, hatred, bigotry and violence. OK, I think you can't do much better, right? OK, but they didn't want to put this on. They had it on initially, but then when they talked, he didn't say it fast enough. He didn't do it on time. Why did it take a day? He must be a racist. It took a day. Of course, the main reason that the media is going around saying that Donald Trump is a racist is because he spent the best part of the last fortnight doing and saying the kind of things that a colossal racist would say or do. So here we are a little over six months into the Trump presidency and we have torch-carrying white supremacists and neo-Nazis marching down the streets of American cities. And the president seems to think that's kind of OK. But not only that, but that there were some fine people among them. And then he lies about what he said after it's been shown on television around the world for days. Now, I'm puzzled by this. Let's see what Robert Meekin makes of it all. Um, Robert, I know that I've been fairly critical of Donald Trump um, in, in the last few months, but at this stage, it's pretty hard to argue against the idea that the President of the United States is a racist. Absolutely. And I think... <laughs> Stepping back from it, and you, you, you look at Trump's revolting performance of, of recent days, and there's clearly you know, cynical political calculation at play as well, because the brutal reality is those same white supremacists, I think you could quite confidently argue, uh, represent a segment of Trump's electoral support. And he's quite aware that if he starts alienating those people 
or alienating people who have sympathies for such views, that could erode into his electoral power base. So, I mean, I think yeah, it, it was obviously a revolting, however predictable it was to witness, but I think there was pure old-fashioned political cynicism at play as well. I mean, he does have this weird kind of binary thought process, just as you were saying, that these people, these fine people, as he was describing them, these neo-Nazis, Klan members, white supremacists, these were the people who last year were standing by Donald Trump when nobody else would, down to the high number of obscene and awful things that he said and did during the campaign. These are the people who stood by him, and so he can't bring himself to criticise them. And when he's finally forced by the people around him to say something critical of them, he can't control the fury at being made to do it. And so the truth of what he really believes comes out. It really is the easiest question any politician will be asked. What do you think of Nazis? The answer's dead simple. I don't like them. They're bad people. That's that's the, that's the only correct answer. What do you think of people who march along the street with Nazis? They're bad people too. If you find yourself walking down a street and you're surrounded by people waving Nazi banners or flaming torches or going on about not being replaced by Jews and you are not a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi, you need to get away from them as quickly as possible because people are going to think that you are. Imagine a Venn diagram. There are two circles on it. One of them is Nazis and the other one is fine people. They don't interact. There's no connection. And if this guy can't get the single simplest question in politics right, what the hell is he going to do when North Korea decides to tweak his nose again? Given his behaviour in the last couple of days, to claim I never said it suggests perhaps a level of psychological disorder that might render him unfit to govern. Well, yes, and he plays by utterly bizarre, utterly different rules to anyone we've ever seen before. Because, you say, he can come out and say one thing, and he can tear that up in pieces within a few hours and say something completely different, deny that he said something in the first place, and it's quite blatantly obvious he said that very thing. I would say, though, again, consider Trump's support... What percentage of those people really care, even if he does completely contradict himself, even if he is right now being uh, seen to be quite blatantly a racist? Is that really alienating uh, a significant section of his, uh, his support base in the United States? Well, I can tell you because um, a poll of Republicans before the rally this week, but after those three rants about about the, the far right, a poll of Republicans showed that two thirds agreed with the way Donald Trump handled the issue of Charlottesville. His approval ratings are ridiculously low. Around about 36% overall of people think he's doing a good job. But what's really disturbing is that that number hasn't moved since the president decided to out himself as a bigot who quite likes white supremacists. So, astonishingly, not only is the president a racist, but one third of the country is is okay with the president being a racist. Yeah, and I wonder, we're trying to analyse, you know, where Trump support came from, which I know political experts have been grappling with ever since November last year. There are obviously those on the extreme side, possibly some people who possibly were rather disengaged with the democratic process before, but there are also those who possibly we would consider reasonably, you know, moderate, I say that with big inverted commas, who may have even have voted for Barack Obama in their time, who got tempted into these waters at the new promised land by Donald Trump 
Trump and came over. Now, I'm guessing that sort of moderate, more moderate section of support would be in some part, pretty horrified by what they've seen. And will obviously be tempted to reverse their vote next time round. But I still, as you say, I believe there's a real core that thinks, yeah, couldn't, couldn't give a monkeys about this, to be honest, to what, what Trump is saying presently. They will, they will stick by him. They think he's doing a, a good job, as hard as that is to believe. Which raises the question of what is the Washington establishment going to do about Donald Trump? Yeah, absolutely. People talk about impeachment. Indeed, one person resigned from an advisory committee this week and the letter he wrote to Trump, the first letter of every paragraph, spelled out the word impeach. There is another way, conceivably, that this could all come to a head. Here's a little more of what Simon Marks had to say on the last podcast. As we get close to the November 2018 midterm elections here, Sean they will think either about impeachment, which I think is less likely, or the slightly more likely alternative of perhaps invoking the 25th Amendment to the American Constitution, which would, under certain circumstances, allow Mike Pence, members of the President's Cabinet and the Congressional leadership to walk through the doors of the Oval Office and say, Mr. President, I'm awfully sorry, it's over, it's time for you to go back to New York. Now, obviously, that's a constitutional coup, in a way. That's a way of just kicking out the guy who has been elected. There will be protests on the street. There will be cars set on fire. There will be riots among Donald Trump supporters. And not only that, Trump could challenge it and take it to a vote in Congress to say that he should get his job back. If he is genuinely displaying that he is psychologically not capable of performing the task of president, you then do have to ask how much longer you are going to allow him to have the nuclear codes. Yeah, I've always thought that you know, for all the sort of placard waving around the United States, that that isn't going to get rid of Donald Trump. What is going to get rid of Donald Trump is a the Democratic route, i.e. the Democrat Party get themselves in gear next time and actually get a candidate who can beat him in that old fashioned way. Or B, it's the American political system, which is the most complicated, at times skullduggerous, <laughs> cynical, yeah, ruthless political machine in Western democracy. And I've often thought that because the way Trump you know, stampeded over the whole system to become United States president, you know, against all the odds, uh, he, he managed to do that. I've always believed that there's, there's a chance that that American political system with all its uh, intricacies, would find a way at some point to swallow him up. Well, I hope spring's eternal. <laughs> Meanwhile, Theresa May did exactly what you would expect her to do in this situation. She condemned the president's remarks without actually condemning the president by name. She is in a terrible position, but how do you play this when you're the prime minister? You have to deal with the US, specifically you want a post-Brexit trade deal with the US, but the president is at the very least extremely unpredictable. At worst, he is a crazed racist lunatic who likes neo-Nazis. And at this point, we are still technically offering this luminous bigot a state visit. And at, at times, yeah, I have sympathised with Theresa May's position. But at the same time, there does have to be a, a point for sheer you know, political morality, A and B, credibility, that you say, no, this isn't right. And the president is plain wrong. And I'm not afraid to speak up against him. Actually, I don't think that will harm uh, Britain's future in terms, of its, in terms of its relationship with the United States in the medium term. And I think sometimes we have to be a little braver in speaking out. Let's head to the north of England now for a bit of peace and serenity, though I hope you're not in a hurry. 
Because while trains will speedily get you to any major northern destination from London, should you then decide to travel inside the north, you would probably be better off to flag down any passing asthmatic donkey. This week, the North's political leaders gathered for a summit to demand immediate investment in public transport, only to be told by the transport secretary that it's kind of not really his problem. Um, Robert, Chris Grayling said that it's for local leaders in the North to take control of transport, which is a coincidence and a handy one for him because he's just cancelled a series of electrification projects for the railways outside London while supporting another hugely expensive rail project inside London. Being based in the north, I, I can say uh, with some certainty that uh, the Northern Rail Network is nowhere near fit for purpose. To put things into context, uh, travelling from Manchester to Newcastle, for argument's sake, would, would, would take longer than travelling from Manchester or Newcastle to London. That's a, so anything essentially travelling west to east, east to west, from, say, Lancashire to Yorkshire, is at times diabolical. It's a plain embarrassment to the country how, how poor our infrastructure is. And again, they've just kicked the problem into the long grass. And I, I think it was, frankly, the decision to sort of uh, delay uh, the improvements of the lines in the north of England and and then to funnel more money into London was, was scandalous. Remember the general election not three months ago when the Conservatives were going to sweep across the north of England, dispatching dozens of Labour MPs. And remember how that didn't actually happen. Are the Tories now just giving up on the north of England in revenge? No electrification for your trains, no money for your public transport, but loads of money for us down here in London. Yes, I do think it's a, it's a more short-term strategy where they're just they're going to protect their immediate interests and they're also their southern, their southern political power base and try and just get get through the Brexit negotiations it reasonably intact. The north of England, again, is very much forgotten and is, again, regarded as the second to third class citizen. I mean, it's worth remembering that if the Tories ever do actually want to win some kind of respectable majority, they would need to win more seats in the north of England. So alienating northern commuters by saying, well, it's nothing to do with me, mate, when you're the transport secretary, might not be the smartest long-term strategy. You know, at the end of the day, Theresa May is never going to have to worry about winning seats in the north again, as unlikely a good, good percentage, percentage of our current cabinet won't have to worry about that. That's for someone else to deal with, you know, a few years down the line, I suspect. So it, it, it's, I say it's pure cynicism on their part, I would, I would suggest. Now, of course, the biggest cheerleader uh, for the North is that renowned cloth cap wearer and whippet fancier George Osborne. Uh, the former Chancellor took time out from his day job, which is beating the Prime Minister about the head with a copy of the Evening Standard, to once again talk up the Northern powerhouse. Is this a genuine Genuine commitment to the North. I know he was an MP for a Cheshire constituency, but is this a genuine commitment to the North, or, or does he just see another way to poke Theresa May with a stick? No, I, George Osborne certainly enjoys, you know, causing Theresa May discomfort. You only had to watch his performance during general election night, where he made it quite clear uh, what he felt when he described it as a dead woman walking. That aside, I'd have to say I'd have to take off my cynical hat at this point and say I do think Osborne, uh, for all the criticism he receives, sometimes justified, I actually think he comes from a genuine place when it does come to the north of England because he recognises it in pure economic terms as much as anything that for this country 
to be affluent in the future and for a healthy economy to thrive, the north of England and the Midlands need to be stronger. And that does inevitably involve stronger modern transport links, for instance, which we say has already have already been delayed even further. So I do think it comes from a real place. I know we we, we chuckle about the, the northern powerhouse phrase he tried to um, he tried to coin when you when you when you're stuck somewhere between York and Durham on a train. You mentioned that you think of the, the northern powerhouse. It just seems laughable. But I do think his agenda and his motives are correct. Well, now let's wrap up some of the more bizarre events of the last few weeks. It's time for Summer Madness. Our summer madness begins with the never-ending question of the Conservative Party leadership. As Theresa May clings on by her fingertips and her rivals prepare to plot and scheme their way through this year's party conference, an unlikely potential successor emerges through the mist. He's tall. He's thin. He's immaculately dressed. He has a posh name. He has six children, but he has never changed a nappy. Yes, it's man of the people, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Robert, this started as one of those summer political jokes. We need a new Tory leader. Well, what about Jacob Rees-Mogg? I mean, he, he's, he's good value, isn't he? Cried a few mischievous Tories. And then inexplicably, somewhere along the way, some people started taking that seriously. Yeah, and this... It's just been in the political water in recent years, on, on all political sides, I would say. I mean, you think of the the rise of Jeremy Corbyn. You want you wanted someone who was absolutely diehard left with his old communist cap on and all the rest of it. Rhys Mogg is the flip side of that coin, isn't he, surely? On the Conservative side, let's just go for an old-fashioned Tory tough. He's, he's funny, he's, he's slightly unusual, but he's, he, as I say, he's, he's a bit of a throwback to what some people consider to be the old-fashioned gentleman Tory. And that, perhaps with a bit of sunstroke, is appealing <laughs> to certain sections of the Tory party and Tory voters as well. This would be the Tory equivalent of the Jeremy Corbyn phenomenon from two years ago. The activists fall for somebody who makes the hearts flutter a little faster, but everybody else is a bit bemused by it. If you were making an old-fashioned Tory out of Play-Doh and you were blindfolded while you did it, I guarantee you it would look like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Jacob Rees-Mogg is what a Tory leader would look like in 1950. And last year he was in a Channel 5 documentary. It followed backbench MPs around their surgeries. He was one of them. He came across as committed and caring taking his constituents' concerns very seriously. That doesn't mean that he is prime ministerial material, but it shows you how fevered the atmosphere's got inside the Tory party, inside the Tory press. Every day, the Daily Telegraph's ringing him up, asking Jacob Rees-Mogg what he thinks about things, as if it matters in any way. Now, look, he is a prominent Brexiteer. He is representative of a stream of opinion inside the Tory party that wants the hardest Brexit with absolutely no concessions. And so, as such, within the Tory party, he, he is a figure that, that you have to think about, but we are not looking at the next prime minister. No, and it's, it's, it's also a reaction against Theresa May, who's obviously pretty dull as dishwater as a political performer, obviously has had a, a disappointing few months. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the contrast to that, as well as it's someone, people reaching out for someone who's quite blunt and colourful in their phraseology compared to Theresa May being so cautious and scripted. 
Uh, a brief word on the opposition uh, parties over the last uh, few weeks. Jeremy Corbyn's been travelling around the country, at least while he was doing that. He actually found the time to mention Donald Trump while condemning Donald Trump's support for white supremacists. Meanwhile, one of his MPs resurrected one of Mr Corbyn's more bizarre ideas, which we thought had been long abandoned, of having women-only carriages on trains. An idea worth exploring, according to Chris Williamson, though the idea worth exploring is probably the idea of stopping men from carrying out sexual assaults on trains. Meanwhile, the Lib Dems uh, carry on under Vince Cable's uh, leadership. You've probably forgotten that because we basically haven't heard from him since he was appointed. Though he does have a snappy new slogan. Britain, he says, needs an exit from Brexit. This, of course, is in spite of the repeated evidence that despite the misgivings of many Remain voters, far fewer of them want to have a second referendum or some other complex device to overturn the result of the vote. Remainers are still far more likely to vote Labour than Lib Dem, even though Labour is resolutely pro-Brexit now. There was a study this week dismissing the whole notion of buyer's remorse, that Leave voters would change their mind if given another chance. Some might even be emboldened in their original choice if they thought the ruling class was trying to stitch up the outcome to ignore the will of the people. That is, I mean, that's, that's an ongoing uh, story is, is the fact that, I mean, you, you speak to a lot of your know, London-based commentators who I think get a very different slant sometimes, that there is still that, that feeling that, you know, well, the, 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 arg- the Brexit argument was bogus, people were misled, all those millions of pounds for the NHS that have never materialised, there should be a second referendum where, where the consequences are made clearer. Frankly, a lot of people who voted Brexit, essentially outside London, would obviously bugger off to that. You know, they voted for it and want to see it through. Meanwhile, more talk over the summer about this elusive centre party that people keep talking about. Oh, we've got people on the Tory party who are interested and a few people in Labour are thinking about it. You know, there could be this amazingly powerful grouping in the centre to challenge the rise of extremism in the left and right. It's as much nonsense now as it was the first time someone suggested it. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating idea, particularly with the Conservative Party now rooted more to the right than it was previously. And the Labour Party obviously rooted more to the left than it was previously. There is this chasm in the middle between moderate Conservatives and a moderate section of the Labour Party. So naturally, people start to think, well, good grief, it's time for that that famous party, the Democrats, finally to emerge through the middle, the, the common sense centrist party. History suggests, you know, it's not going to work. We only have to look back, obviously, to the, the SDP, although they certainly had their moments. It was gobbled up in the end by the Liberal Party, and the, what's left of it is now the Liberal Democrats. That can't, and that certainly can't be considered a roaring electoral success. Now then, what time is it? Now you may be finding this a little painful to listen to. How are you coping now that Big Ben is no longer chiming? Do you need a tissue? Or maybe a comforting hug. Because apparently switching off the bell in Parliament's clock tower for repairs is a scandal of epic proportion. Some MPs even turned up with their heads bowed for its final chimes before the work began. Because, Robert, nothing 
suggests that MPs are busy doing serious work that matters to their tens of thousands of constituents more than them hanging around crying about switching a bell off. Yeah, and it was a fairly self-indulgent, ludicrous state of affairs. You know, I, I like Big Ben as much as anyone who visits London does, but really the idea of it uh, causing so much controversy that, that this uh, an old building needs repairs so a bell can't chime for a few years. The vast majority of the country you know, literally did not care. I get that Big Ben is a symbol of Britain. And on some level, it is sad that it won't be chiming regularly for four years. But Theresa May had more to say on this than she did on Donald Trump confirming to the world that he is a bigot. Newspapers reacted to this as if the bell was being melted down for scrap and sold to a Polish guy with a white van. Presumably the people working on the clock tower are just supposed to sacrifice their hearing for Britain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it has all the hallmarks of the classic British August story, which we're now coming to the end of the month, but, you know, political stories to really get your claws into have been fairly thin on the ground for much of the Westminster lobby over the last few weeks. So something like this just takes on rather ridiculous proportions. You know, about half a mile away from Westminster, on the other side of the River Thames, there's a huge food bank, which I went to uh, a couple of years ago to do a piece during the 2015 election, where I was told about this massive increase in the number of people in the centre of London, in the shadow of Parliament, who have to rely on food banks to feed themselves and their families. But still, feel free to get upset about that bell. Anyway, the breathless excitement of conference season is advancing upon us. You're excited. I'm excited. So make certain that you pack your bucket and spay because next time we will be off to the seaside or Birmingham or Manchester or Harrogate or some godforsaken conference centre. In the meantime, get in touch on Twitter at Paul Osborne. Earn our endless gratitude by leaving a rating or review on iTunes. And until next time, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.